People, three quick things you can do to support me and support the Value Economics Podcast. Number one, subscribe to the Value Economics Podcast. Number two, leave a five-star rating if we deserve it. Number three, if we deserve it further, leave a review. Something nice, something mean, whatever you value. I don't care. Let's get into the show. Everybody's got to Value Economics Podcast. Six million ways to die. Choose one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Value Economics Podcast. I am tired. I'm very tired. I, um, it's been a long, long week. It's been a great week in, in a lot of ways, but it's been a long week. I am recording this at around 9.30 at night. Um, I, I partially it's my fault because I stayed up to watch UFC. I watched the Jack Hermanson-Joe Pfeiffer fight. Uh, great fight. Shout out to Jack Hermanson for winning. Joe Pfeiffer is a dog, but... Hermanson got the dub tonight, so wanted to stay up and watch that. And unfortunately, I postponed the podcast recording because I had a lot of stuff to do today in terms of getting this article done, written, scripted out. And then I didn't get to podcast earlier on because I was at church for a good portion of the entire day and doing all that kind of stuff. But I'm here now. And this, I'm glad I'm here now, by the way, because this is a topic that I have been thinking about and has been in my head for quite a long time. And I think we need to talk about it, obviously, or I wouldn't have dedicated the last week to writing something about it. So that being said, I think this topic is really important. It's really critical. It's something that I do very poorly, in fact. So I think that if I do it very poorly, there's a chance, although I don't hope this, but there's a chance that a lot of you guys might also do it poorly. And that's not good because I think this topic is of absolute criticality for where we are going to take our lives into the future, particularly with all the confusion that is going to happen within the next couple months, the next year really in in total. Uh, There's going to be a lot of stuff that happens obviously in the world within our lives. And that's very individualistic, very collective in some ways. But I think we can have a really good shot to optimize all of that if we were able to get this delineation down. So this is something that's been on my heart for a long time, and I think it's finally time we start talking about it. So with that, without further ado, let's talk about it. Okay, so no more talk about success, at least for now, but back to our regularly scheduled programming, i.e. talking about how Sam sucks with women. So yay. Micah's struggles with the opposite sex have been much maligned on this forum for going on five years now, and more before that, obviously. I'm happy to say that I believe that these results are improving in almost all metrics that I can think of. Am I married yet? No. But am I going on better dates, meeting better women, and overall feeling more settled into the possibility of meeting someone I could marry? Also, that's a yes. So this is a much better state than I have been in previously, and I'm very grateful for that. However, as with all learning, it cannot be done so without running over your typical myriad of potholes and speed bumps. It is a particular point of pride, particularly in the dating realm, for me to claim, I believe rightly, that I have the most unique set of dating-related potholes and speed bumps that most have ever heard of. I have been cock-blocked, curved, friend-zoned, ghosted, and been hit with almost every other possible verb in the modern dating vernacular in almost every way possible. When I really have the chance to talk about it, most people agree with, if nothing else, the generalized absurdity of the various conundrums I've found myself in throughout the years. The latest entry into the saga came about one month ago. But before we get to happen, what happened one month ago, we must go back to what happened around eight months ago. Eight months ago, I was trying my hand at a new and very niche dating app. And for the uninitiated, it's very hard for anyone, especially a man, to find someone of quality on a mainstream dating app, such as Hinge or Tinder. 
on a dating app that is trying to survive for just just long enough not to be crushed by one of the aforementioned behemoths, it's nearly impossible. But on the values guy, I've now optimized and oriented my entire life towards making my mark on the world, specifically in this arena. I'm quite literally betting my entire future on it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. However, like any captain worth his salt, for better or worse, I need to go down with the ship. The very interesting thing about this particular dating app is that, unlike all the others I've been on, it has a very unique feature called Dates. In this feature, you can name a time and place, throw it out to prospective matches, and see if anyone is interested. It is the algorithm equivalent, algorithmic equivalent excuse me, of the age-old fishing line. Throw something out in the water and see if someone bites on it. And like fishing, much of your success in fishing depends on the environment in which you fish. If you fish in the deep waters of the Pacific, odds are you're going to end up at least having a chance at something. If you fish in your neighborhood retention basin, the odds of you catching something are slim at their very best. Your environment, as it does with everything, matters far more than most are willing to accept. The same adage is just as, if not if more, true when it comes to dating apps. Environment matters. While Tinder may be a modern hellscape of OnlyFans models and broken men and a hinge and hinge a modern purgatory escape of wannabe OnlyFans models and on their way to being broken men, it is an undeniably better market than a net new dating app because of simple scaling practices. The matches not be great, but at least you get more shots at it than you would otherwise. In this particular escapade, I created a date on the app, sent it to the whims of the algorithm, and set it to expire in about a month. Three weeks in, not a single woman had liked it. I, like most, was highly dejected by this. I thought for very long about taking it down. Why bother? It's not like anyone's going to like it anyways. Might as well rip it down and start fresh and new. I thought long and hard about this, but something told me to leave it up and let it expire in a week's time, so I chose to do so. On the very last day of my date being up for expiration, I kid you not, I got a notification from the app that someone had responded to my inquiry. Stunned, I maneuvered my way into the app and became unbelievably more stunned. Not only did this woman seem interested in my date, she seemed interested in me. Additionally, she was beautiful, made great conversations, and had the most similar life experience to me that I'd ever talked to a person about. She was very grounded in her faith and had a younger sibling with autism. I was blown away. I couldn't believe my luck. We talked for a few days over the app and eventually got to a point to FaceTime one another. That went well, and we eventually got to FaceTiming each one another every night, most often for several hours. This is incredibly unexpected. My non-negotiables for women are not, in my opinion, unreasonable, but putting them together makes what I am looking for very hard to come by. I don't have many boxes to check, but she checked all of them immediately. There was, however, a bit of a snag to work through. She lived in Portland. Portland, as I was later come to realize, is a very long way from Austin, even by plane. As we got to know each other more, we started to talk about the possibility of seeing one another. That opportunity became real when, remarkably, one of her friends chose to go bridezilla, kick all of her other friends out of her wedding, and turn the woman off from stepping within the state lines of the bride. Already having flight credit, she asked me if it would be okay if she switched her plans to come down to Austin for the weekend instead. Trying my best not to embarrass myself completely, I said that she could. She did, and the weekend went great. I showed her all my favorite spots in the city. We went to my church, we slept in separate beds and kept our boundaries while at the same time being around each other enough to see if we were compatible. She was more attractive in person, both in appearance and personality. We drove around to look at houses the morning that she left, imagining what a potential future could look like should things keep going well. I dropped her off at the airport where she left to visit a friend in another state, and I left to watch a fictionalized version of a physics nerd make the greatest weapon that mankind would ever see. I was very nervous when I FaceTimed my girlfriend the day she got back to Portland. Would things be different? How would she feel? 
What would the level of awkwardness rise to? Fortunately, when I dialed in, my fears were assuaged almost immediately. In fact, the connection had seemed to grow stronger. We were able to, since we knew each other more deeply, talk more intentionally about where things could end up going and about our hopes, goals, and dreams for our lives. Eventually, we agreed on a weekend where I could return the favor and come up to Portland to visit. She still lived with her family, and she and they welcomed me with open arms. We hiked through a beautiful state park. We drank margaritas and watched football. They spent six hours cooking me barbecue and making sure I was comfortable. We ran errands, got brunch, and went to church. It was like saltburn, only without the weird shit that only Jacob Elordi could pull off and still be respectable. After church and looking at an aura ring she wanted, she dropped me off at the airport on a Sunday afternoon. I told her that I'd text her when I was taking off, said goodbye, and set off from my gate. I did the obligatory now-boyfriend things, thought about where things could go, made a post on Instagram, and all the rest. I was in the clear. However, when I buckled my seatbelt and listened to the somewhat sad, monotone voice of the pilot, an Oppenheimer-esque nuclear reaction hit my iMessage. Quote, Hey, let's FaceTime tomorrow. I want to talk about something. It was at that point and that moment that I knew it was over. Never once had either of us asked to FaceTime one another. It was just something that we did. It was a part of our lives now, of our routine. I said yes, put my phone down, and tried my best to not let my anxiety run rampant on the flight back. Ironically, I believe that God prepared me for what was to come. Next in the podcast rotation, literally the hour that occupied the next day minutes before I called her, was an interview with Jordan Peterson and Larry Arn talking about the basics of life and what was important about them. Dr. Peterson is a lot of things, but that day he turned out to be a prophet. The conversation was very short. She was merciful and came right out with it. I don't think this was working was the part that I caught. I told her that I was sorry if I did something wrong. She said that I did nothing. It's not you, it's me was the gist. I asked her if there was anything that could be done to repair the damage, and she said no. Not being in a mood to force anyone into my life they should, not, should they not want to be, I took the L, wished her well, and hung up. I didn't self-destruct afterwards like I had done in the past with breakups. I took this as a good sign. I texted my mom and several friends who had followed her on Instagram. There was no need to do so anymore if she wasn't in my life, was my logic. Mostly, I was very sad. For the first time in a long time, I had allowed some, myself to have hope only to have it ground underfoot by something I didn't know as to why it had happened. Fortunately, I took the process relatively well and began to move forward accordingly. I removed her from my life and tried my best not to look back. Until last month. In my mail preview email I get every morning, I scanned the photographs and found a very interesting entry. That day, I was addressed to a, ha I was addressed a handwritten letter from a place called Gresham, Oregon, the larger town just outside of Portland that dwarfed my ex-suburb of, suburb of Damascus. I didn't recognize the name, so I had no idea what to think. When I opened the letter, it was from one of her best friends that was currently in overseas ministries in Southeast Asia. When I had first started talking to my ex, she had put up an online fundraiser to raise money for her cause. I chipped in, chipped in $50 and thought that was the end of it. That card was from her, stating to her thanks for donating. I looked her up on Instagram, sent her a picture of the envelope, and told her thanks. I then took the risk that I had been wanting to take, but hadn't for the last six months. I asked her with much trepidation how my ex and her family were doing. I genuinely wanted to know. Keeping with that trend, I was genuinely floored when her friend told me the answer. Quote, She's doing great. She just got engaged, actually. Keep it on the DL, though. Not many people know. End quote. It was at that moment where my pain not only resurfaced, but washed over the edge of the dock. I went from slight depression to complete despondency. I was distraught. Not only had she dumped me, 
but she had met someone new and gotten engaged mere months afterwards. The questions began to rage. Am I really that much of a loser? Was she cheating on me? Was this guy involved the entire time? Were her and her family talking about me like a mafia family does right before they whack somebody? The one word that circled in my head, the one word that haunts me most about the relationships that I've had, was failure. This bled into my work the following day. That day, I went to the office clearly out of sync. I have a terrible poker face in general, and that day the awfulness was nearly palpable. Nonetheless, I kept my boundaries up very high at work. I don't let my coworkers in very much, for obvious reasons. It's not that they're bad people, because it's quite the contrary. It's that I believe there's a delineation that needs to be made. Some things, in my opinion, must be kept sacred. But one of my coworkers has, remarkably, been able to pierce even this veil. She's a great person and has become a very good friend of mine outside of work. She's been on my podcast before and has become a confidant in terms of faith and life that I would have never imagined outside of the workplace. Additionally, she gives good advice and makes sure to keep boundaries where they need to be. We think very differently from one another, but our motives, thankfully, are quite similar. Even so, I don't let people, even those close to me, in very often. It takes a lot of prodding to get me to be fully honest about something, particularly about the way that I feel. Thankfully, my friend is a very good prodder. We went into a breakout room, and after a couple of questions, I was something with her that I hardly am with other people. Objectively honest about something that I hate being honest about. I admitted my biggest insecurity in full detail, in a way that I hadn't before. That insecurity, in sum, is something like this. I have a lot of things. A great family, am in great health, and a lot of community, a faith that has become the center of my life, friends that are awesome, have written two best-selling books, am halfway through my third, have a job that pays well, an emerging startup that I'm running, and a media company that has experienced triple-digit growth every year since its inception. I should be happy. I have everything. No complaint should add the remote possibility of entering my brain. Except for this one. I have, quote, everything that, quote, successful people have. I have I've had it my whole life. No one ever shuts up about it. I don't blame these people. In most contexts, they're correct. But if I had my choice, I would dump all of it for what I've always wanted, a wife and a family. I would give away every cent, undo every podcast that I did, rip every single word out of my books to have that one thing that I don't have. I don't want this. I've never asked for this. It's the most narcissistic and selfish thing you could say, and I hate saying it. But that doesn't mean it isn't how I feel, because it is and always has been. After my friend took this in, she gave me a solution that I thought was very interesting. She told me that I was balancing two things, choice and control, and that I wasn't doing a very good job of understanding the difference between the two. She told me that to get over the situation and recognize the broader trend, I would need to examine these further. In essence, she stated correctly that control is something that you don't have. Choice is something that you do have. I couldn't control my ex dumping me and getting engaged to some guy she was probably cheating on me with. But I could choose how I live my life and how I could optimize my choices going forward. This is essentially asking to control the controllable. It's not a new idea by any stretch. But unfortunately, it's also been corrupted by a lot of things currently going on in our culture. I thought about this conversation a ton after it ended. It has occupied my mind constantly ever since. As a recovering control freak who oftentimes is not doing a very good job at the whole recovering part, I'm horrible at this practice. I want to command everything, be as self-sufficient as possible, and not allow anything to come in and disrupt the flow of my life. However, due to primarily me recognizing that there is indeed a power that is greater than me in the universe, I've been forced over the better part of the last five years to reevaluate my options. And my generalized conclusion is this. 
I believe that this distinction can provide tons of benefits to a great deal of people. Too many people are opt opting for control when opting for choice would do them much better. I believe strongly that in harnessing and leveraging this difference, we can use it to generally alleviate a lot of self-imposed suffering that isn't very constructive to life. We can't all can and must choose a lifestyle. However, we cannot control what happens after that choosing occurs. We can and should emphasize the choices we make because choices are the single biggest catalyst to either a very good or a very shitty way of living your life. And this is nothing to take lightly. Nothing is small. Everything is big because everything matters. However, after choices are made, we must do something else. Surrender control of the aftermath of those choices. The outcomes of your choices, in more ways than you might imagine, are not up to you. The world is simply too complex, too splintered, too fragmented by human brokenness to even have a hope of controlling almost anything. So first, we must understand the difference between choice and control to see what we can fully use its power to our advantage. Second, we must see why the difference is so important that, so we drill into our heads why one is more favorable than the other. And lastly, we will see different strategies and tactics to live a life defined by good choice, but with no control. And maybe, just maybe, we can avoid the ex getting engaged after she dumps you scenario again. But I'm not hopeful for that. At least for me, but maybe for you guys. Hopefully for you guys at least. Growing up an Ohio State fan, there were a lot of people to look up to. When I was in high, I realized I just sound super different. I, I, I took a drink of water, by the way, after I, during that break. So I don't know. Geez, water is just the, a magical thing. Drink, drink more water, everyone. Hydration is very important. Drink more water, please. I will get back to the regular scheduled programming now. So growing up in Ohio, it's probably going to come back, by the way. So uh, don't get your hopes up. But growing up an Ohio State fan, there were a lot of people to look up to. When I was in high school, the team that won the 2014 National Championship had plenty of examples of current and future Buckeye legends. Ezekiel Elliott, Joey Bosa, JT Barrett, Cardell Jones, Taylor Decker, and countless others. Every time you watch a Buckeye game on TV, you can't look away from the greatness. Names like Eddie George, Archie Griffin, and Troy Smith are emblazoned everywhere you look, forever immortalized in the history of one of the greatest traditions in all of American sports. However, one name that does not get nearly the recognition he deserves that he brought to Ohio State football is Chris Carter. Carter, who many believe had the greatest hands of any receiver to ever play football, was an absolute monster at Ohio State. Hailing from the former steel powerhouse of Middletown, Ohio, Carter burst on the scene and became a, pheno a phenomenon in just the golden age of passing, as just as the golden age of passing was beginning to emerge. He was universally recognized as one of the great wide receiver talents in recent memory, and had an NFL draft scout salivating over him from the moment he stepped onto the field. However, Chris Carter had a combined dark and downside to his stunning play on the field. Off the field, he couldn't stay clean. Carter was in almost every vice imaginable, his two favorites being alcohol and cocaine. It says something that, in an era in the late 80s that was defined by those two things, that Carter's problems with the substances were so immense that people felt compelled to call him out on them. He certainly wasn't the only one indulging, but he certainly was one of the biggest. Additionally, when Carter signed with an agent illegally in his senior season, he was dismissed from the team, which led to the firing of his beloved coach Earl Bruce after he tallied a puny six wins. Remarkably, despite all of these things, Carter was still drafted in the fourth round of the supplemental draft by legendary coach and defensive football savant Buddy Ryan, who at the head time was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. In his first three seasons, Carter continued his success in the field, scoring a touchdown in his very first catch and being third in the NFC Conference in touchdown receptions in just his third year in the league. Carter, as predicted, was on his way to becoming a superstar. 
However, before the clock began to tick on his fourth season, shockwaves rocked the football world. Before his fourth season with the team, Coach Ryan released Carter, arguably his best and most promising player from the team. When asked about this stunning move, Ryan said he cut Carter because of his substance addictions, including finding him abusing large amounts of cocaine, ecstasy, and marijuana. Ryan genuinely loved Carter, but felt that by empowering him through his superstardom, he was ultimately doing him a disservice by giving him unlimited ammunition and excuses to fuel his own self-destruction. For Carter, this is the first time in his life as a star athlete that he had faced repercussions and corresponding humiliation for his actions. After the Eagles cut him, this was furthered by the Minnesota Vikings claiming him off of waivers for a measly $100. He was also demoted, sitting behind two starters and barely seeing playing time early on in his career with the Vikings. However, his fortunes, bolstered by a new desire to be clean and contribute to the only team that gave him life, began to turn after that last lackluster first season in Minnesota. Carter went on to make eight consecutive Pro Bowls, set nearly every receiving record in Vikings history, and become a mentor to a young player named Randy Moss, who went on to become perhaps the second greatest receiver at the position ever. Carter was later named to the NFL Hall of Fame in 2014, where he tearfully thanked Buddy Ryan for cutting him, saying that without this happening, his career would have gone soon into the toilet, along with the rest of his life. After football, Carter found himself making pit stops at several media organizations, his most notable being paired on the morning show First Things First on the burgeoning sports media empire Fox Sports 1 with up-and-coming superstar Nick Wright and host Jenna Wolf. Carter, an incredibly sharp analyst when it came to football and also doubling as what he perceives as a better basketball career earlier on, Carter and Wolf were a hit to a then-stacked lineup, leading into, leading into Undisputed with Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless at the time, The Herd with Colin Cowherd, and Speak for Yourself at the time, with Jason Whitlock and Marcellus Wiley. Fox Sports was loaded, and Carter was responsible for setting the tone for the entire day's broadcasts. Although Carter's time at FS1 would end rather unceremoniously, there is one broadcast that Carter did that I'll never forget. The segment focused on Josh Gordon, the troubled wide receiver for my Cleveland Browns, who could never seem to get clean on or off the field. Unanimously billed as one of the great talents that the position had seen in decades, Gordon had seemingly squandered everything, throwing it all away for alcohol and drugs, showing no sign of repentance or remorse. Carter empathized with the young receiver, who he saw a lot of himself in. It was then that Carter launched into a tearful and regretful monologue about what his addictions had truly cost him. Carter told the story of being on location for a First Things First assignment and then going out that night with Wolf and Wright to celebrate. Carter stated that no matter where he goes, he knows that he's going to have to be a buzzkill and a damper on anything that he goes to. He will never be in normal situations because of his addiction. He knows that every time he goes to a restaurant, a club, or a bar, he will be tempted, and everyone will have to adapt to him. He is not in control of his addictions. However, he also stated that he continues to do this because he loves the people that he holds relationships with and wants to do what he can to make sure he doesn't take away from them. So he stays tempted constantly wanting to take a drink, but never doing so. Like the famous parable of Tantalus in Greek mythology, he can never get too close, because getting too close means, to him, plunging into the darkness once again. He ended by saying that he wished that Gordon knew this. It might help him get him out of the same darkness that, for the longest time, followed him. The story of Chris Carter's tragic life of drug existence, or, or drug abuse, as well as the corresponding stories of other addicts, show the main differentiator between choice and control perfectly. The main differentiator, the thing that clearly divides the two concepts, 
is this. Choice can lead to greater control, but ultimately, you have no control. It is certainly true that you can optimize things in your life by making better choices about things in your life. However, that does not mean that you get to govern anything else outside of those choices and those choices in your life, i.e. the rest of the world and how it decides to react to your choices. Yet the story remains the same. Everything, regardless of what the subject is, always resets choice as the number one factor for where you end up in your life. We all desire control, but really, all we have is choice. There's nothing we can do, no matter how much we have been lied to and propagandized about it, to control the world. We are not gods. We are mortals, confined to a few and very finite set of resources to govern our lives. Control is not in our wheelhouse because, more often than not, we often choose to do poor things with that control than without that control. Just look at the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, or the COVID pandemic, or the French Revolution. All misunderstood this dichotomy. All paid dire consequences because of it. Consequences for our actions are things that will always happen, whether we want them to or not. We cannot escape them because we do not have control over our consequences. Only the actions that force the equal and opposite, if we're lucky, reactions of those consequences. It's a physics principle, at the end of the day. There are rules and we cannot break them. To break them would be to assert ourselves in an improper position in the order of the very way that the world is structured, to all of our perils. Given this, all we can try to do is align our cards in our favor and hope that they go in the ways in which we want them to go. There is no point in trying to reach beyond this scope. If we do, we mostly end up harming ourselves and other people in the process. The derangement of self-sufficiency, of empowering yourself beyond what you should be, is a common problem that has spread throughout history. Human beings are powerful things, but not all powerful things. However, we have no say in what the rest of the world perceives and how they perceive it, as we just mentioned. So, any notion that we have control of anything that is outside ourselves, other than the choices we make, is mostly fruitless. The best thing that people can do when placed in these situations, more often than not, is to remind yourself that you are limited. Because you are. You are not a god. You are not more powerful, or better, or more well-equipped than most others. You're just like them. Broken, fallen, and hopelessly flawed. Humans desire control because we believe that control will solve everything. We think that by accruing more power to our human fealty, that it will somehow overwhelm that fealty. We believe that things, no matter what they are, that have more power than they would know what to do with, are inherently better and more valuable than things that are not. Control is easy. You just become a god and let yourself rule everything. You're not accountable to anyone but yourself. But we would be mistaken to think that this choice is preferable. This is, this is a, and perhaps the most, narcissistic thing you could desire. This is because to believe that what you know is best about anything is immediately cause for something that is mostly beyond you. The quote, I alone can fix it mentality has been nothing but destructive to everyone that has attempted to or tempted it, no matter who they have represented or what they have claimed to want to help. Therefore, the desire to control things is pointless. To have control over things is pointless because it will only amplify, not limit, your possibilities for failure. Responsibility is universally correlated to a higher burden over things in your world, whether those things are directly your responsibility or not. Even though we can and should have control over our choices, we cannot have control over what those choices will cause. To demand that we do so is inherently tyrannical. On the contrary, humans hate choices because we know that choices can't solve everything. We know that we are limited, but yet our biggest fear is realizing and having come to terms with the fact that we are. 
There is a humility that we lack when it comes to choices. Control is far easier, but it's also something that is overwhelmingly impossible. Choices are hard because we know that at the end of the day, choice is something that requires a lot of responsibility. Additionally, as mentioned, we know that we have very little to say in what that responsibility will bring upon our lives. We know how to pull the pin out of the grenade, but we don't know where that grenade will land and how furiously it will blow once it detonates. This is, obviously, the most more important part of the equation, which is why we can't stand the fact that we don't get to make all the calls and how it goes down. However, since we cannot have total control, and we know that we can't have total control, choice is overwhelmingly our best option. It is the option that we should be aiming for. There should be no distractions nor debate about which one is more optimal for good lives. Control, something that no human being can possess, keeps you starved and weakened. Choice, on the other hand, while not guaranteeing anything, gives you the best chance of staying empowered and vitalized so you can make the best out of whatever situation you currently find yourself in. This all seems very obvious. I probably carried it on for far too long as it is. But remarkably, it's not for most people. There are so many that seemingly have no idea how critical the split between these two concepts is and why it needs to be there. There's a lot of emphasis on both peaks, but not enough in the valley that divides them. So, therefore, a further dive into the valley is needed to truly see what we're up against. Earlier this year, my church, Red Rocks Austin, did a five-week sermon series entitled Pendulum. The series was a heavy one in many regards and dealt with the concept of balancing two very important biblical ideas back and forth to avoid succumbing to extremism. Some of the topics covered hit very close to home for a lot of people, stirred up division for some, but ultimately remains as one of the better sermon series that I'd ever seen a church do. The second sermon of the five took one, took one of perhaps the oldest and most fervent debate within the Christian religion, free will, free will and predestination. For those who are unaware of the terms, the key question to understand is the following. Do we have the capacity to make choices, or does God simply make them for us? God is sovereign, but does that really mean that nothing we do and that nothing we pick matters? We make choices, but it, is it us that's really making them at the end of the day? The debate initially began with theologian John Calvin, who developed the idea of predestination and began to dominate the Christian tradition. In Calvin's view, God needed to supersede all of our decision-making because God was the one who, indeed, gave us everything. To say that God was not in control to him was blasphemous. The doctrine of Calvinism and predestination remained the dominant view of this argument for years. This lasted until one of Calvin's students, Jacobus Arminianus, had the bravery to divulge from his teacher's point and claim the opposite, that God was not in charge of our decisions, but we were. God gave us free will, citing things like people turning away from God as examples. If God were so obviously the best way to do life, as all Christians believe, how could they possibly turn away if they didn't have the human brokenness to do so? Arminianism, in contrast with Calvinism, split the early church, which therefore broke the debate between the two ideologies wide open for all sorts of Christian and worldly thinking to come in and attempt to rationalize it. The debate between free will and predestination is so intense that it has dissolved friendships, divided sects of Christianity, and has led to countless numbers of incursions and deaths. There is nothing, not even politics, that matches theological debate. As Cardinal Manning once so eloquently stated, all conflict is, indeed, when it comes down to it, theological. When your beliefs are challenged to the weaker among us, it is not simply a debate about what constitutes living a better life than others could potentially live. For those people, for that demographic, it is a matter of life and death. However, my pastor had a better, more nuanced interpretation than those who succumbed to either side of the extreme in the debate. The overall conclusion that my pastor gave was this. Free will and predestination are both very important concepts, so important that there is most likely truth to both of them.
God is certainly all-powerful and sovereign over our lives, but human choice and decision-making is too awful and good sometimes to claim that God does not allow human beings to make them. God is sovereign, but we also must choose to follow what he says. God is never out of control, but we are never fully in control either. On both sides of the argument, choices must be made. There is no free lunch in this argument nor in any other argument that matters. You must take in both sides and come to some sort of compromise. Extremism is easy. Nuance is hard. Those who are able to eschew the former and come to some type of terms on the latter are those who are, more than likely, able to live better and more sane existences because of it. The debate between free will and predestination, whether you identify as a Christian or not, points out a very interesting feature of our human psychology. It perfectly articulates the relationship between choice and control. There are some people, as the Calvinists believe, that we almost ha that believe we have almost no control over our personal destinations and outsource it all to outside circumstances. On the other hand, however, there are people like the Arminianists who believe that we have control over everything, and no greater forces matter between the two of them that could throw off their ultimate power to make decisions over things. When you examine the two of these arguments very carefully, you begin to realize that both of them, in that context, are inherently absurd. There is no way that, to the point of my church, the pendulum can swing that far in one direction or another. But there are certain things, as all things lie, that are preferable. The reason why Calvinism is largely non-existent in the Christian tradition currently is because people have begun to realize that there is so much more to life than simply outsourcing all choices to something outside of themselves, no matter who that thing is. This is not at all to demean what God can do, but rather to acknowledge what he made us to do. This mirrors the relationship between choice and control perfectly. We choose things. We must choose things. But at the end of the day, we have no say in what happens. We do not get to control the rest of the world because we are not God. However, we have all much more control than we would like to perceive. And it is this that terrifies us. Choice, as mentioned earlier, is hard. We would much rather not be responsible for our own lives than to be responsible for them. That's by far the easier option and the one that most of us would pick overwhelmingly if given the option. Therefore, it is the only choice that matters at the end of the day, not control. Or it is only choice that matters at the end of the day, not control. Obsessing over controlling everything will get you nowhere, simply because you have no say in the matter of controlling anything or anyone. This is, in my estimation, one of the leading factors in why everything in our world seems to be going to shit so often. When people believe that they're more powerful than they are, they succumb to tyranny and all the insanity that comes with it. However, when they do the opposite and fail to realize the power of their own choices that they make, they outsource all of their agency and sovereignty and largely fail to launch altogether. Both are a miserable existence, particularly when you believe that you are so much better than you actually are, so much so that you believe that controlling the world around you can actually be a viable option, which it isn't. Those who are obsessed with control are playing a game they can't win because they are pretending to be something that they're not. Freedom comes when you realize your limitations. If you, do not want, if you do not want to observe how you're limited, you can't possibly free yourself enough to use what you have to make something worthwhile happen. The problem with being a control freak is that, regardless of how much you want to make things happen, you cannot until you realize where your blind spots are. When you try to play God with anything, you get burned incredibly quickly and very intensely. Humans aren't meant to handle all the world's responsibilities. When we attempt to, usually one of two things happen. The first is that, if we are able to manage most of it, we have to become tyrannical in order to sustain the power we've accrued for ourselves. There can be no room for delegation because our minds have been so warped by control. The other option, the worst option for you personally, is that the amount of control that you possess overwhelms and breaks you, like it does to most people. Obsessing over something, wanting so much to have dominion over a thing that's not yours, puts an immense amount of pressure on yourself. 
so much that you can often almost can't avoid not shattering into pieces once it begins to happen. Once this begins to settle in, the pain will keep piling on until it becomes unbearable and you come apart. Therefore, we must realize that it's only the response to things that are outside of your control that actually matter in the end. Even though we must understand that choices can and always do feed into things that ultimately control us, we must know when to let go of things that we most desperately want to have. There must be room for other forces to work in your life, because you aren't and can't be competent in everything enough so that you force something to happen to you, or, and for you. There is almost nothing more narcissistic than that premise, but unfortunately so many of us continue to fall for it constantly. Thus, the proper relationship with choice and control is knowing that when we emphasize our choices, we can gain more, but not total, grip on that control that ultimately governs us. Choice leads to greater control, not in the inverse. However, it's also important to recognize that without total control, our choices, this, should this be what we're optimizing for, would also be things that ultimately frustrate us a great deal. When we understand this, we can begin to unburden ourselves from several of the unnecessary things that consume our conscience. Like the argument of free will and predestination, it is a combination of the two, not the extreme of either, that ultimately governs our individual endgame. Since we are and will never be in control of our own lives, we must work with what we have and try to make our best to make sure that, if nothing else, we at least try to steer ourselves in the right direction. In the inverse, when we emphasize control over choice, we end up with less choice. This is because we cede all of our personal sovereignty, like the Calvinists, and suffer unnecessarily for it. Agency matters, no matter who, most likely nefariously, tries to convince you otherwise. There are things in your life that you need to leverage properly in order to get yourself out of certain bad situations, most notably knowing your values and where they can take you in your life, good and bad. So what do we do with this now that we know this distinction? Well, as mentioned, getting rid of suffering is out because getting rid of all suffering is impossible. However, just because suffering must exist doesn't mean we cannot use it constructively to craft what we want and how we can use it in our advantage. We must emphasize good choices to direct our constructive suffering practice while also realizing that we have no control over those choices ultimately bring us, over what those choices ultimately bring us, rather. This is a very difficult balance, but one that, should we want to live as value-driven of a life as possible, which is what you should want, by the way, we should all work to pursue. There is no sports analyst that gives me more enjoyment than Joel Klatt. I love sports, particularly football. A lot of Americans like sports, particularly football. While professional football will always be my first love and the thing that I will more than likely be obsessed with until death, college football for me is a close second. Even though they play the same game, they're very different sports. That said, the people who are responsible for guiding the viewer experience in those sports are unbelievably important to their success. The commentary matters a lot. You can tell almost immediately, given a set of broadcasters, whether you're going to have a good time watching a sporting event or a bad time watching a sporting event. While the product in the field is certainly the most important thing that matters, how that product is talked about matters more than most would originally assume. So the question we should be asking about the subject should this be something should be something akin to this: What makes a good sports commentator? From my perspective, a good sports commentator is able to effectively balance two things. First, they have to be a fan of the sport they're commenting on. There's almost nothing worse than a mercenary commentator, one who does not have an attached love to the people and sport that they're, comment they're commentating on. Second, as a counterweight to the first, they must be objective and smart about the product so as to not let their fandom overwhelm them. Get those two in balance, and you're more than likely going to have an awesome time watching. However, this is easier said than done. Greg Olson gets the second part right, but not the first, for example. In the inverse, Tony Romo gets the first part right, but not the second. The balance is hard, particularly when it's coming from a former player's perspective. There are very few that I think do a truly outstanding job at this. 
John Anik with the UFC does very well, as does Charles, da- Charles Davis with the NFL and Kirk Herbstreit with college football. However, none of them do it as well as Joel Klatt. Klatt, when paired with his broadcasting teammate Gus Johnson, who is also unbelievably great at what he does, and Jenny Taft, their sideline reporter, comprised by far the best sports broadcasting team in the country for any sport. There must see TV every time they come on. This is for a few reasons, particularly when you look outside of the necessary counterbalance named above. The biggest differentiator that Klatt has, other than his love of college football, which is bigger than I believe any other person in the college football media space, is his wit. Klatt is remarkable at the ability to think on his feet, adapt, and keep up with whatever environment he is in. He is also great at defending himself, both by leveraging data and history, as well as being very quick to counter whatever point is coming his way. This is why Klatt's rise to the top of sports commentary has happened, in my estimation. His weekly spars with Colin Cowherd, combined with his ability to translate this into some of the biggest games in college football, have propelled Klatt as a fan favorite and the de facto voice of college football around the world. This leads into a secondary effect of Klatt's wit that has become what most of his fans, myself included, have come to love with him. His humor. Klatt, particularly in an environment where his wit and quickness can thrive, is unbelievably funny when given the opportunity to do so. Now that he has one of the fastest growing sports podcasts in the world and a fan base that is translated from the sports he comments on to the commentator himself, he is getting more and more liberty to showcase all the things that make him great across the spectrum. And this was apparent in a recent rendition of his show, The Joel Klatt Show, where he got the opportunity to weigh in on one of the most ridiculous, quote, controversies in college athletics. Recently, the University of Texas has been on a rampage against a phenomenon called Horns Down. For the uninitiated, Horns Up, what UT uses as their rallying cry to their fans, is when Longhorn fans form their hands that only their index and pinky fingers are sticking straight up in the air towards the sky. It's an innocuous gesture in the broader sense, but one that, like all things colleges athletics have in common, makes their fans rally around the team. However, what has happened in recent years is that when a team has beat Texas to something, they quite literally flip their sign on its head. It's an act of insult and protest. College sports fans have done what college football fans do. Everything they can to get under the skin of the opposing team and fan base. It's what makes the sport great and why people continue to fuel the fire that is college athletics. It's the biggest differentiator it has between themselves and professional football, and one they should be encouraging at every chance that they get. Unbelievably, and the biggest sign of college football snorts snowflakery I may have ever seen, which is saying something, by the way, the University of Texas is taking massive offense to this gesture. Several times, they have petitioned to have anyone that flashes horns down removed from their games and banned from re-entry. Horns down, it seems, is not equivalent to the middle finger. In fact, it's something much worse, something much more unforgivable. Keeping with, up with his typical personality, Klatt did what he's, abs- he's best at. Absolutely roast the University of Texas for being soft. With his typical humor fully engaged, he lambasted UT, making sure that they knew that this entire, quote, controversy was really just an act of closeted weakness and emotional fragility. Horns down, as he correctly stated, is nothing more than a thing that someone usually does, usually a couple of beers in the can while doing so. As a now native of the town that the University of Texas resides in, I can say this with absolute confidence. But Klatt also used the opportunity to do something else he's quite good at, translate this into an opportunity to illustrate the broader point on how to live a good life. This is the thing that, in my opinion, makes Klatt a role model for me and many others, particularly young men. Klatt wasn't always as successful as he was. He was an alcoholic and a drifter, something that was fixed with, something that was fixed with his relationship with God and his marriage. Klatt knows what it's like to be at the bottom and at the top, and can give great advice as to how to effectively cope with both. Using the horns down point to go full dad mode, Klatt echoed a timeless, a timeless lesson, one that we've been discussing for the entire entirety of this article. 
Why are people so focused on the external that we forget the internal things that we can govern? Klatt's point, and the larger argument of this entire article, is that we are often so quick to blame other people to outsource our sovereignty to the weak side of the toughness gap that we forget how much control we have, not over the other people, but ourselves. And the harsh but liberating reality is that we have a lot more control over our current circumstances than we would initially think or like to believe. As mentioned throughout the article, control is easy and choice is hard. We have choices to make every day in innumerable areas of living. That's why choice is the number one factor in the direction of your life. You can't afford to fuck many of them up, particularly the ones that matter. It is the response to outside stimuli, not the governance of outside stimuli, that largely determines the output of everything constructive that happens within your life. Therefore, that should be, and always comes back to, your optimizing principle about what you choose to focus your time, energy, and effort on. We must develop ways to live a life of constructive suffering with good choice, but no control. And the first way to go about doing this is to know that, whether you like it or not, suffering is going to happen. There is no getting around that principle, no matter how hard you fight against this. Things in the world are going to hurt you, sometimes so badly that they go beyond the pale of your initial comprehension. You never really know how truly difficult something is until you go through it. Thus, most people have no idea how hard many things in life are until they get clocked across the face of it, whether that's entering a romantic relationship, starting a business, or repairing a family. However, even though a large part of suffering cannot be chosen, the terrifying yet revealing countertrend is that most of our, most of, much of our suffering can be chosen. You can choose to undergo what pains you in your life. For example, you can go through the pain of being alone for the rest of your life, or you can go through the pain of trying to find a relationship. Both are painful. Both are hard. Both can be chosen. This is the same when applied to every scenario in life for the most part. There is always a flip side, and usually that flip side is something you can make a great effort towards reaching should you actually attempt to reach for it. Therefore, if, in theory, we can remove a good portion of our suffering from a cruel world, I'd say that this is a very good thing. The main way you can start with this is to ask yourself a lot of very honest questions. Do a life audit. How much of your suffering is caused by you? How much could you remove by sourcing them to, cho to choice instead of control? How much better would your life be if you internalized that instead of what the out outside world is saying? Having done this myself, while also still failing at it quite a bit nowadays, you will be amazed at how quickly things begin to get back on track for you as soon as you begin to do this. There are many ways that you can turn your life around for the better. One of the most effective and quickest ways to do this is by reframing suffering to understand that while it's something that isn't fun, it's something that is necessary given the way of the world. Therefore, if you can bend suffering in your favor with choice, you have the best chance to get controlled outcomes to fall in your favor downstream of your choice to suffer constructively. Following this, however, you must always remember that what we've been discussing this whole time, the very theme of this post, has to tell you. No matter what happens because of choice, you still will have no control ultimately in the end. Because control is a fantasy. It is something that all of us wish we had, but something that none of us can attain. Any attempt to control things, particularly the actions of another person, is an act of tyranny and an affront to the natural order of things. It is not something we should make a habit of doing, particularly since tyranny has a tendency to breathe further tyrants. We all would do well to make peace with the fact that the world, as beautiful as it is, is also a fallen and very broken place. There are a lot of things in it, including all of us, that miss the mark, that fall short of what they could be. The goal, then, should not be to attempt to change all of them and assert our false sense of dominance over them. Instead, the goal should be to understand what we're up against and be as proactive as we can to avoid the trappings of the havoc of what a broken and fallen world can wreak upon all of us. Most things, as mentioned, will be far harder than you anticipate particularly if they are things that are value-oriented and worthwhile. The sooner you get this concept through your head, the sooner you can move on to shit that actually matters. 
there is no getting around hard because hard is ubiquitous. Hard is constant. Hard is something that largely determines what happens to you in the long term. The sooner that you make peace with this concept, the sooner that you can use it to fuel value-driven activity within your life. Finally, I believe it's always good to end on a truism. The truth, the only thing that we can reliably count on to point us in the direction we need to go, is the ultimate arbiter in these types of situations. The truth is the only place we can really go at the end of the day to get the answers to life's biggest questions. On this subject specifically, there is a hard truth that, while many people disagree with in public, they all know to be true in private. We actually don't want to control everything. I believe that, deep down, humans understand that having choice is better than control. It's a natural human instinct, because humans naturally take the path of least resistance. There is hardly a path more opposite than the one defined by the least resistance, than the one defined filled, uh, one filled with control and dominion. I believe that, deep down, humans don't want the responsibility of controlling everything. From a biological, moral, and practical standpoint, it largely goes against everything about what I perceive of human nature. Instead of control, the right thing that I believe would be more appropriate to do would be to adopt a posture of surrender. Surrender in our culture gets a bad connotation, which is in a lot of ways deserved. However, at the end of the day, if we are to choose choice over control as we should, we ultimately need to acknowledge that we surrender to something. Whether that thing is your higher power of choice, a value system, baseline hedonism, science, or anything else, you must work to submit that thing to that thing eventually. The reason why this is so crucial is because in doing this, you can ensure that you create a solid launch pad on where you go from here within the context of your life. If you have no foundation, particularly if it is not based on anything value-driven, you are most likely going to find yourself drifting away from anything and everything that can provide things that are value-laden. Value begets value. Nothing else can take its place. You need to be governed by something. So given that, you may as well play the odds in your favor. The way that you achieve this is not by control, but by choice. In surrendering control and elevating choice, you give up on governing everything. However, by proxy, you also give yourself the best chance to govern yourself. That's a trade that, in my opinion, is well worth making. Controlling things is overrated. In fact, controlling things is dangerous. It leads to oppression and tyranny, not freedom and morality. In acknowledging that we control much less than we do and elevating choice, we throw the odds that the world gives us back in our favor. If we forsake choice for control, or perhaps worse, fail to acknowledge the difference between the two, we risk gaining greater command of our own agency, dominion, and sovereignty. In a world where there are very few levers to pull on that front, this must always be at the edge of what we do to better ourselves when the opportunity presents itself. Except when it takes you to Portland. Believe what you hear. That place sucks. Whew. And that is it for the week, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way through. I think that's the thing that I've been really struggling with. I hope that it was valuable to you guys. And I hope you guys have a great start to your week. We have another really fa- awesome guest coming up on Wednesday. I can't wait for you guys to meet him. Happy Valentine's Day. I won't be able to say that at, at this point, but happy Valentine's Day this upcoming Wednesday. And until then, I will see you guys on that podcast. But on the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening as always. And have a great rest of start to your week.